Gary Cochilino. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I'd like to thank some of the contributors to my podcast. Uh, Candice Sanderson is executive producer, Amanda Steele, senior editor, and Damien Keller, binaural engineer and production manager. Um, if you are interested in becoming a contributor of this show, all you have to do is go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a ton of information. And now, without further ado, we have the living legend himself, Jared Murphy. And by the way, Jared, happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm going to assume that you are Irish. Uh, was the Murphy last name a giveaway or... Uh... My mother's maiden family. I'm I'm Davern also, so I'm I'm O'Davern and Murphy. So I'm quite a bit Irish. Interesting. Are, are you a Dropkick Murphys fan? Uh, yeah. Ironically, I've been revisiting all of that lately, and and way before St. Patty's Day was coming up, I'm like, wow, I haven't listened to Dropkick Murphys in a while. I'm going to start listening to them. So I did. <laughs> awesome. You know, blast from the past. That's fantastic. So it's weird. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before we, before the show, we were just talking about uh, how um, I was uh, doing some promotion on Facebook, and uh, your name came up. All of a sudden, you're like a, a world-renowned celebrity about this oh. whole Antarctica <laughs> debate in the diary of Admiral Byrd. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, how, how did this all occur, man? Uh, it's your fault, actually. Because <laughs> uh, you and I were talking about the Grand Canyon and what constantly is being spoken about is, uh, have you heard about Kincaid finding um, mummies and Egyptian stuff in, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry, for everyone listening, this is a serious conversation, but I have to reduce it to this because I'm impatient with the constant retelling of, uh, the details of what was a one-time story uh, about G.E. Kincaid of alone floating down the Grand Canyon noticed a, mind you, the Grand Canyon is up to 6,000 feet high and uh, noticed a cave from a distance that he made his way up to. And there are some scrambling, um, precarious yet scrambling style steep hills. And he gets his way up into this cave and allegedly finds mummies and gold artifacts, et cetera, et cetera. And of course the article was put out on April 1st. So was it an April fool's joke to um, the Smithsonian, you know, denies that there was ever an expedition for this three. Um, and, the, the, and of course they have no artifacts that they did not send people there and find Egyptian things, et cetera, et cetera. Part of it is based on uh you know, Cleopatra and Mark Antony having a child that may have left with 6,000 to allegedly 50,000 people. And they ended up in the Grand Canyon. And anyway, the story just keeps getting told and okay. Why have, okay. There's a no fly zone. There's some off limit portions of by off limit. It's more complex than that. There is hiking, uh, sort of splunking more like you just go to caves and check them out. And there's a lot of things available to do in the grand Canyon that are, 
accessible and can be gone to America on earth did an episode where um, you, you know, they go and they check out footage of climbers that were, they got stuck at so many feet into a descent to this exact cave allegedly. And, and that irrelevant to being true. The issue is this dialogues out there on all these channels that it's important to us because we want to know our true past. And so we got talking about going back to that cave or similar caves, rock cut ruins, anything that has to, and that's a big topic in my next book that I'm, that I have um, finally getting to. And it's about the rock cut ruins all over the earth. And although we're not talking about Sardinia or, or, or Turkey or all the underground, uh, not just tunnels, but complex underground structures that represent a tens of thousands of years old society that was well aware that they had to survive through disasters. So the Grand Canyon, uh, thousands, not millions, but it could be millions, but these cave entrances everywhere. The issue, the other thing with Kincaid is that everyone gets real excited because they get excited in the story that it was a entrance to an underground world and that there was, it's not that that's not possible. It's that, why aren't we back? Why don't we go look? So we got talking about doing an expedition back. And I think you and I are going to talk about that, but then it also started to get, I started to get a bit of a, again, I was, I'm focusing on the Grand Canyon expedition. I have pulled climbers together that are expert route setters. Um, we are, we are planning this and we are doing research on it. Uh, however, Antarctica, there's a hole in Antarctica. There's a big blotch in a Google earth image. Nobody can see it. And there's a, an, an entrance so big, even though there's no lights in it, it's so big that Admiral Byrd personally flew a plane into it and then they had room to turn around inside this entrance and they flew out and it was an entrance to inner earth and whether there are dinosaurs and T-Rexes with saddles and it's Dinotopia, uh, that's, that's the thing is that there's a story about it. Now, I did do a show with Conflict Radio. Uh, I, I co-host and we did it our third interview. I Well, I've interviewed Brad Olson on my channel uh, conflict. Michael's done that. I, and together we did this show the other day. And so the one you're referring to kind of, well, at least that Brad and I were talking about, because Brad's been to Antarctica. He's been to some of the different bases, uh, not the ones that he wants to check out, like the original German bases. Um, Cause his suggestion was base, I think 211 that he really wants to go to check out because he thinks it's dates to uh, Nazi era uh, occupation of Antarctica. And so he thinks that that would be a really great base to check out. But the dialogue is, again, there's this narrative out there that retells these stories over and over and over. The Grand Canyon is accessible. We can go to the Grand Canyon and we can climb and we can descend or we can um, ascend to these locations and at least discover whether or not the canyon, uh, th that any of these, some of these cave entrances look very particularly shaped, not accidentally, they look rectangular or square or round, but they don't look naturally worn out. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go back. And then here is an, this Antarctica story where Admiral Byrd's diary comes up constantly. The only reference point for the diary is a book that said, well, there's a diary. Incredibly similar as pre-show goes, 
uh, people on occasion with me want to talk. I knew it would eventually come up after my book came out that eventually they're like, Hey, what do you think of Zachariah Sitchin's work? Well, again, he started publishing in a time period where nobody can contradict or really easily verify the cuneiform tablets he's referencing. There is nothing, and I point to an ancient origins article. I have it on my member area of notaliens.com. And it's an article that just gives you a quick high overview of all the things that are factually stated within the Assumer culture's origin stories about the Anunnaki. Yes, they mentioned Nibiru, but no, there's nobody from Nibiru. There's and, and so here's the problem is that if, you, if you've gone a lot of, I'm not going to call them fan sites, but not as well researched, um, where if you go to a site that looks very factual, where they have this, here's the story of the Anunnaki and here's how they modified humans. That's, that's not what the actual Sumer cuneiform tablets that we have access to say. There are millions of untranslated cuneiform tablets, but Zechariah goes on and writes, what turns out to be very popular work that the Anunnaki are from Nibiru, another planet, and that, and, and I do write about this in my book, not just about the Anunnaki and this reference point, but more importantly, that there are astrophysicists that have sorted out because of the pull and a number of other scientific um, points that one, we might be in a binary star system. Most out in the galaxy and out in the universe that we've looked at, mm. habitable planets usually have two stars. So there's a possibility we have another star that we can't, haven't quite sorted out where it is yet, but it's part of our solar system. And two, that there could be an elliptical orbit of a planet, maybe Nibiru, that's 3,500 to 15,000 years in orbit uh, based on this other binary star system. So I do write about this, but as far as the stories go, just like Admiral Bird's diary, here's what we got. We got a guy who has a book that he says is a diary that no one has access to. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I've read the diary. No, you've read the story about the diary, but there's no diary. There's been no verification that I've seen. I've seen no original diary entries. I have not said that, look, this is an Admiral Bird's pen. Uh, none of that exists to the best of my knowledge. Uh, well, he did it on a typewriter. Suspicious. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who type a diary, but, you know, I'm just, you know, and, and I'm old enough to know what a typewriter is and use one. And so here we are with um, the same thing with Zachariah, where he comes up with a theory. It's very creative. Uh, some of it has some truths in it. But the problem is now we have a number of people with a lens of focus on their past saying, well, the Sumerian Kings list shows Kings going back to, you know, just eight Kings ruling for about 240 to 265,000 years in pre-Diluvian, you know, and we have a pre and post biblical flood list. And it's not just one in Sumer, there are multiple Kings lists that are found, but they all reference pre-flood Kings and post-flood Kings. And eight of them lived for thousands of years to the tune of ruling for 240 to 265,000 years, give or take, depending on the document. But then what we do is we look at our past and mystify it. So I, I don't want people to not, it's not about believing in the Anunnaki. It's about 
tabling all the evidences in a giant adult mystery game of Clue on the ultimate playing table, like literally not only our history, but our future, like genetically how we're all charged and how we're manage ourselves is all tied to what we know about our past and how we then maybe even intently read or like binaural beats, you know, how we do brain entrainment, how we do meditation, how we explore the astral planes. All of this has to do with reactivating genetic memories, genetic abilities. You know, it's our lack of consciousness. So I have a problem with this diary and I got talking about it with Brad and it was, what the hell, uh, where's the damn diary? Just, it's not a hard question. It's like, why is that the rude question? Why is the, it's not rude. No one's saying it's rude, but I'm saying it's rude to keep talking about something that, okay, great. We have a book about it, but now where's the interest to go back? So let's get to the Grand Canyon first. I want to do some archeological work at America's Stonehenge. Dennis Stone has invited me and Michael and feel free to show up, but uh, we're going to go out at the end of April. Mm-hmm. I am going to give a lecture at America's Stonehenge. Uh, so if people want to come, uh, I will have tickets available on my website on notaliens.com soon. Awesome. And if you want to come to America's Stonehenge, I'm going to do, I mean, there's not a lot of events right now. This, you know, like this is nothing. Yeah. There's literally, well, there's the 5d convention that Brad Olson's doing. Uh, this weekend, this Friday uh, through the weekend, there's the 5D convention in Vegas. If you want to go for 400 to a grand a ticket, that's going on. So that's happening. Um, well, it's Vegas and, you know, the the disease that will not be named, uh, you know, will will Harry Potter, this whole subject. And uh, so there is a convention. And he's hosting some panels and giving some lectures. And there's, uh, it's the the 5D convention that's been going on. It is happening in Vegas this weekend. Is that crazy? It is crazy. I wanted to go, but apparently, um, uh, well, there were no openings. So I'm going to go to America's Stonehenge and we're going to do, it's a 110 acre site. And it's been an active archaeological site for 70 years. Uh, Author. And near a board member, uh, uh, David Brody, who wrote Romerica, he's gonna he is gonna be there. We're gonna be checking things out together. I've interviewed him and a few times, and uh, it's been it's awesome. America's Stonehenge is one of one of eight hundred sites around just that area to Canada. Mm-hmm. Of they've carbon dated some stuff there to eight thousand years old, and and I think it's I think it's much much older. I think it predates the Younger Dryas, but either way. It's super interesting site. That's happening at the end of April. We got the Grand Canyon to work on. And then up next, after we, it's not about proving whether or not Kincaid really went to a cave. I don't, uh, yeah, if there's an interest uh, entrance to inner earth and there's slea stacks and land of the lost, I mean, hell yeah. But somebody just sent me this picture of an alien. Oh, uh, right now, it looks like a white cloud with two dots in the lower left corner. Uh-huh. Is it uh, an alien <laughs> that's in Kincaid's cave as we speak? I don't know where that alien is. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Selfie. And and again, this best part, uh, the reason we have to be careful with Zachariah and um, 
the Kincaid or the bird diary is that we want to go. And I think we need to have these dialogues, but the age of exploration needs to start again. We need to start going to these places. And there's so, it was so interesting, Gary, when we were on talking about it, we had a really, we have great fans in the chat and they were talking about like, yeah, you can't go. To, so this is a great, it's not, I'm not making fun of this guy at all, but this is a very typical example. He said, yeah, you need 160 countries to sign a document that you can go. And <laughs> I know, but, but it's like, okay, so you learn when you're little that anyone can go to Antarctica or the Arctic circle that all countries agree that you, nobody owns the Arctic or the Antarctic, you know, you, it's an open, it's open land. It's not, it's there for exploration. It's there for scientific research. It's not confined to any one country. However, countries have bases there. Mm -hmm. And then we have operation high jump, which gets talked about. And that it, much of the, much of that was still classified, but there are many things that are classified. And the issue is, is that possibly Admiral Byrd, possibly as early as 1947 or 49, that there was an encounter with a remnant uh, Nazi um, encampment and that there was possibly Nazi anti-gravity flying saucers and that they uh, shot up the bird expedition that there was six, you know, but maybe that happened and that's what's classified, but those are the stories we're hearing. And we're not hearing it from the people that were part of the expedition. Uh, we're hearing it as complete, uh, again, what, what, what's the origin of those stories is all I'm asking. Mm -hmm. And not that I don't, I'm again, that picture of that alien is why my book is titled, it's not aliens worse. It's us because it's, it's the possibility. And I've talked about this before. If everyone who hasn't heard the short is uh, if you can move 1000 to 3000 ton blocks and shape polygonal constructions, you also had not only the technology to cut, measure uh, the blocks, but also they're always working in limestone, granite, and basalt. They're always working with stones that have these weird piezoelectric properties where, you know, Yusuf Awan has a great video uh, of, well, it's Ben from Uncharted X did a video of Yusuf in Egypt and Cairo in his stone, sh in one of his shops where they're putting current through what looks like those disc pillared, they look like those Egyptian volt mm -hmm. uh, towers. And it's very interesting. And I think they were done on a global scale. So we're talking about a society that could manage frequencies and energy technologies and, and modify even based on the slivers of truths, whether it's the Anunnaki or otherwise that they could, they can manipulate or literally just straight up program. They understood DNA for what it is, electronic switching, biological computing that to us, it's natural. I think that it's all like, this is what computers and robots look like running amok. It's us. And <laughs> this is this is us, that 10 to 15% BIOS programming, just <laughs> nothing to compute. But, what, <laughs> you know, we're not doing it right. Um, so, yeah, I think that, um, where gosh, where was I tying that in Antarctica? I don't know. I know, right? You I, 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 and another thing. I'm on the I'm on the angry archaeological warpath right now. I know you are. Uh, uh, well, I I'm excited because I do think that people can participate. Everyone watching, 
uh, scratch your head and ask yourself, why aren't we going? Why don't we check it out? And there are areas of Antarctica that aren't available to us. Uh, there is a couple of girls that set out to set a record and cross country ski. And Brad Olson brought this up on this interview that they literally a nondescript helicopter landed and said, you will not be continuing this direction. You've gone as far as you can go. They're like, but this is a life. Yeah, well, you're not going to be cross-country skiing one mile further in that direction. They picked them up, they dropped them off, and they said this area was off limits. So, And then there's other strange areas that get tented. Admiral Byrd did set up a base that I believe was abandoned in the late um, 70 or, or I'm sorry, late 60s, early 70s, it was finally decommissioned. So there was a military base. At the same time, there are other locations. And what people don't know is that you don't need 160 countries. There are a few ways to travel. And I can't believe Brad did this. There is, and we're not talking tiny, we're talking mm -hmm. a very large sailboat. You can leave from the Falkland Islands. And he said you had to pay cash, which is crazy just going through. Uh, customs with tens of thousands of dollars with like 20 people or 30 people but they you can go to antarctica using a sailboat and that's the most adventurous because why not experience the sensation of possibly capsizing and looking for you know icebergs and yeah. that assorted stuff right isn't that fun? fun yeah absolutely yeah uh, so they uh they got tickets that because it was a group I had heard the numbers were like eight grandish, and he was able to get his group down for six. So you have to get to Chile and then you have to get, and then they hop you over to the Falklands. And then generally that's one of the departure points and you can go to Antarctica and you sleep in your, in, in, in the sailboat. I mean, you sleep like you're in a galleon, like it's the 1600s. I mean, not really, but, but you're in a, a little cot and you're sleeping basically uh, like ship, seamates you know you're part of the crew you have to be on watch you have to take your turns but you sail to antarctica in really rough water and then you go to different ports and you have to tell these locations that you're coming if you want to be able to stop and visit there's even a bar uh if you want to call it that but you have to bring your own food your own rations you know etc stuff like that it's not like you're going to go to you know a restaurant like a real restaurant and then there is also cruise ships that go to Antarctica. And again, you're in the uh, eight to 12,000 range, uh, but you can, uh, it can be up to 16,000 depending on how long you go. And this isn't like a, you generally not a one week deal. It's 10 to, and 10 days would be short, right? You're really looking at two and a half to three and a half weeks at a minimum. But then if you also go, you can leave and take a French resupply vessel that is constantly running supplies down to Antarctica. You could hop on that for a few grand. Uh, you could hire a private ship. But commercially speaking, there's also trips to scuba dive in Antarctica. That's a thing. You can go scuba dive in Antarctica. And I don't think enough people are aware that commercially speaking, for all the available places on earth you could go, you can actually go to Antarctica. You can wear a dry suit. You can actually get in the water and you can actually get and explore above and below ground. And one of the other things was like Brad talked about is they hopped in their little uh, skimmer. I can't remember what he called it, but they uh, has a really odd name like ziggurat, but not a ziggurat, but they would go over to an iceberg and the ice is so old 
I joked that, well, they, they, it's blue, like deep blue. It's so old and pure. So they would chop off chunks and they got a big kick out of it to bring it back to the sailboat. And that's what they used for their ice cubes for their drinks. And yeah, so they're using iceberg ice and then you can walk on icebergs, but sometimes they can flip if they're small. So you have to decide if you think you're going to be able to get on one that's not going to flip. So they did do a little bit of that, but then the blue ice cubes, and I'm like, this is great. I mean, get just given our current pandemic, it's like, yeah, let's eat ice off of something that has 8,000 year old or 8 million year old bubonic plague or, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, this killed everything. Like, you know, what, what do you think went wrong 12,000 years ago as you clink your Coke together with the uh, ice in it from the melting <laughs> biological weapon of, of some high society's ancient past, you know? Um, that, that I think is all very interesting, but it is very realistic. Antarctica is a bit bigger than America. So it's not like you can just mush out. Uh, worst temperatures are down to 160 below zero. Uh, but in summer... They're very manageable. I mean, I'm in Minnesota. We've had, we had a record-breaking winter and I was still walking into the grocery store in sandals and it was no joke, 33 to 40 below zero plus wind chill. So it was up to 60 below. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you can't wear the gear and for us to get going. And it's about, you know, what's not, there are parts of Antarctica that are like two kilometers deep in ice. And there are parts that are exposed. And then of course, like, Brad pointed this out, that pyramid that looks like it's down in Antarctica. Uh, well, uh, it looks like it might be natural. Okay, but Brad's question and my question was, uh, what geologist has gone? It took uh, in Jakarta, in Indonesia, you know, there's a 23 to 27,000 year old pyramid structure that is yet to be exposed. I write about it in my book. And uh, this is not a structure in Antarctica that's been looked at by a geologist. Mm -hmm. And that's the interdisciplinary trip that we need to take. So we need to account for income. You know, people have to get paid. You can't just go for free to Antarctica, but then we need to have the equipment to go to the location. So how much fuel, supplies, et cetera. How do you create a safe expeditionary force to go to that? And Brad was talking a film crew to go back and do some general filming. And he's looking at a million two ish. And I've been looking into the trip, not, not taken away from our grand Canyon, but like 600 to a million, a million is the number I came up with. Uh, but he's talking about a pro film crew, you know, focused sure. on filming. I'm guessing that's taking a good chunk out of that budget, but there's no reason you can't one as a general human being, listen to this podcast and go literally just go to Antarctica, go diving, go sit on an iceberg, uh, go visit some ports. You can, and go inland and check things out. It's absolutely possible. And then at the same time uh, for an expedition, uh, yeah, please contact us because we're not kidding. And the, the Grand Canyon expedition needs, you know, the, the professionals that we're bringing to set the routes to enter some of these caves. You know, it's not, uh, we, we do possess all the gear, but to do, a, uh, to do either an ascent or a descent, 
to 1,500 to 2,000 feet off the ground safely is a tough thing to do because the rock is considered very, in a climbing term, chassis. It's, it's, fr it's fragile. And what we need to do is probably epoxy and set bolts. So it's going to take time for us to set safe routes to a climb uh, to any cave that we suspect is rock cut and more ancient or represents an older people, whether it's the Anasazi or Pueblos or uh, any of the other uh, adobe building native indigenous peoples. The reality is we don't have eyes on that. And so I have been in communication with someone that is uh, pretty clear that on the east rim of the canyon, there are some very suspicious rectangular shaped caves and they're not from a mining company. But what's your luck, Ben? Have you been able to find anything yet? No, I haven't. But I really haven't had much time to dedicate to it. I've been pretty busy with work. Well, so I have uh, found... Um, so I found the entrance to the cave of the Guano Point Cave. Mm -hmm. And I know we talked about... I think it'd be interesting... Uh, for those who, you know, again, want to know more, I, I, it's the King-Finn Fertilizer Company. King-Finn Fertilizer Company are the ones that they would mine. They thought there was going to be 100,000 tons, which would make it a 12 to $15 million endeavor, which is totally worth building the cable car, which for those interested... The cable car was still functioning when they made the movie uh, The Edge of Eternity. So that was a movie that um, I'm going to pull it up again. Uh, but it's very interesting that they actually fil film uh, the cable car, a scene. It, 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 it's, uh, uh, it's, let's see here, it was, 1959 edge of eternity and it's very it's so interesting because we have uh, a series of people that end up in a situation i don't want to ruin the movie because i i think i like old movies but the cover of the movie itself has a photograph of the cable car and it's an attempted it's the film starts with an attempted murder of a man uh, and he's looking into the Grand Canyon with binoculars. And anyway, and that's how it starts. And so it's not, I don't, again, I don't want to ruin it. It's 1959, but they actually show the functioning and they do a scene on the functioning cable car in the Grand Canyon at to Guano Point. And the cave system is, at least from the photo, it's, it's very interesting, but again, it's not, you know, it's part of the Grand Canyon National Park, but Marble National Monument or Marble Canyon, which is part of the Grand Canyon, is the area that we have been uh, focused on to maybe talk specifically about, well, to look for the GE Kincaid Story Cave, which is an entrance not only filled with Egyptian stuff, but to cities and underground you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we have these stories and I'm just getting ready for us to go back and start looking. That's all. And 
I'm hoping some people will help uh, fund the way. Me too. You know, one of the things is, you know, and I think, you know, people like us are trying to change it is people wait for, you know, archaeologists and uh, geologists and whatever to go out and make <sighs> discoveries when anybody can. You know, people like you and yeah. I can go out yep. and make these discoveries or, or investigate things that are, you know, claimed to be real. I mean, simple things like the cave. I mean, the cave in Grand Canyon is going to be a little tricky. You know, um, stone the, the American Stonehenge that you're going to, it, yep. it's right there. It's open to the public. Anybody can go there. Um, another one that I've been thinking about recently that, that could possibly be explored is the uh, the alleged pyramid in Florida in the glaze. They say there's a pyramid there. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. All See, these are like all a, things. All that you need is like one of, the, uh, one of those like airboats and. You're there. Yeah, I don't. I have not heard about a pyramid in Florida. What's up with that? Yeah, they say there's a. Uh, just Google it. Just Google pyramid in Florida, and, uh, and you'll see uh, the uh, they supposedly found the pyramid there. Um, I think they're believing that it was probably Mayan, because the well, Mayans I... may have come through the Gulf of Mexico and built the pyramid there, or at least started the construction of a pyramid. Well, there are uh, well, the one thing I like about Florida is that there was geosatellite imaging of ancient canal systems that uh, cover a very large area from Florida and further in. The same canal systems are in Arizona, and they are very ancient. And there's no society that's accounting for those. So, I very much uh, respect Indigenous people. We have to consider though that there's tens of thousands of years of societies that we don't understand that we're living here uh that uh i again we should uh, consider looking at so floor pyramids in florida uh let's see okay there's actually that's really funny guys so apparently if you guys want to go visit uh, and vacation in a pyramid uh, with a pool, a sand pool. Apparently, that's a thing in Florida. So, thank you, thank you, Internet, for showing me all the things I don't need to see. Uh, so, I'll try one more time. I was just curious. It's such a huge thing. So, I want to point something out to people too that uh, I I really uh, want people to. Consider that early archaeology, although, okay, so the profession of archaeology, what you have are really anthropologists, people who want to understand ancient humans to a point. They're not geologists. They might have some experience with geology or understand maybe, uh, maybe a particular culture is building techniques and they get to know that geology very well. But early archaeologists used to take really long rods and pound them in the ground. And whether they ran into someone's skull, uh, a beautiful artifact, they would yank, they could, they could pound a rod in 20 feet or whatever and, and, and hook something, literally destroying what they're digging at mm -hmm. and, and pull out the hook, the rod and go, oh, or as they're pounding it, they might hit a soft spot and they're like, oh, there's something in that space. That's one of the ways they discovered uh, 
burials or things where they wanted to dig. This is the actual techniques of the earliest archaeologists are so primitive and insane and disrespectful to what you're supposed to find. Not to mention that not every site needs to pre be preserved, but what we have is, um, I just watched an episode of America Unearthed that I had never seen, because I didn't actually, I've, I haven't seen the whole show, but there was one about an ancient standing stone with a face on it in Chicago that was found on a river that they mistook for uh, a carving of uh, that a soldier had done it at a fort and in the 1800s and the reality is that it could be thousands of years old and it was a standing stone marking a river system and at one point the museum uh, this is a large stone this is a large stone mm -hmm. it was so big and it was so tall they got the bright idea that they would drill into it and make it a drinking fountain for people at the museum. That's what they did with this piece of archaeology. Um, I've talked about antiquities theft. I've talked about the, the British Museum. Um, not the, uh, I, I, I mentioned a lecture that was given by Dr. Melissa Sellu at um, McAllister College about antiquity theft and how you have a representative from the British Museum pulling out a massive papyrus scroll from Egypt and the way he gets it out is distracts uh, the customs people with boxes of oranges. And this is at the turn of the century. So he, he's trying to leave with too many oranges. Mm -hmm. And in reality, he's not pocketed and destroyed and cut up uh, a priceless papyrus that he sneaks out of the country. And so these are archaeologists and it relevant to their individual behavior it's not that all archaeologists are bad or do it bad but when we say adventurers dr or colonel percy fawcett brad pitt played him i'm not i'm not gonna ruin anything for you for you mm -hmm. to know that the mystery is yeah he was a, yeah so surveyor goes out into brazil decides to go back he's gonna find this lost city and after a couple expeditions comes back with his son, they head into the jungles and they're never seen again, but he wasn't an archeologist. He was an adventurer. Uh, he had done a lot of things, but he, there's no one that ordained him. You may now go and explore. You have permission to be human and explore. And then you have Arturo. One of my most favorite people on the planet is Arthur Pazansky, and you should look him up. Uh, this guy uh, wrote on Tiwanaku, explored, went off. His friends called him Arturo. And the guy just was your classic, right out of the movie, the mummy kind of guy. And he's English and just brilliant as far as no one gave him permission to go be an explorer. You just go do it and nothing's stopping any of you. It's on one hand, the idea of I'm not taking away from anyone that wants to go out and just, you know, get on a tour, go take a tour. You don't have to make it hard to get somewhere. What's hard is actually saying I have a passion and interest and I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me via a degree or something else that I'm going to go look at something, a uh, go, go look. Because I'm guessing you're not going to pound a 20-foot rod in the ground and destroy 
you know, priceless artifacts, mm-hmm. or right now there is an uncountable amount of archaeological finds that are being left to, to literally dust. It. I mean, there are multi-billion dollar institutes now, these larger universities. They have the capital to invest in archaeological work that is obvious, like in Peru. There are fields of bones, yeah. fields of um, elongated skulled Paracas people that have never been biologically tested by any serious, allegedly serious institution. And I am throwing that cup down. You call yourselves a serious academic institution, yet you can't tell me anything biologically about the Paracas. You're a joke, all of you. It's sad. It's not in National Geographic. It's not uh, in Discovery. Uh, it's not on other shows about it. Sure. They bring it up, they show pictures, but the actual biological and chemical testing and the fact that there is, again, you can't, every individual archeological project could be tens of millions of dollars. So if we add them all up, we could make a lot of institutions broke, but strategically uh, being able to head out in situ of some of these bones and document them, or I mean, really uh, the field work that's available to young undergraduates. And I'm not talking about colleges. I'm talking about give yourself permission. Uh, like Marie Ricci, you know, the woman that spent 50 years working on the Nazca lines mm-hmm. and then, you know, 50 years on the Nazca lines. And yet here we are in modern times. And there's been like four discoveries in the last four years of these are not, these are geoglyphs. You see them from airplanes and we still haven't accounted for all of them. They found in the last four years, we found like 60, 60. That's that they're, they're, they're on the sides of hills and in valleys. And it seems like too, even with those, like they're finding them in other places now, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. It's it's not just Peru. Yeah. And the Nazca lines, Bolivia has Nazca lines. I'm talking about not the monkeys and the graffiti. I'm talking about oddly straight earth antennas or earth uh, circuitry. Like, well, well, what about the chemical compounds? They're like, well, that's just the natural acidity of this dry climate and this type of volcanic rock. That's why it's acidic. Well, not according to Eric Von Danigan, not according to some of the research that's been done. Uh, well, no, no, it's just they've just swept away a small, thin surface and the lines stay there forever because it's the driest place on earth. Okay, yeah, but why do they have piezoelectric properties? Why do they look like circuits? And they appear to be shaped that way. And so do some of these earliest constructions. Again, when you start, instead of tabling 130-year-old Victorian theories and you start tabling what we're seeing in the ground, I'm not remotely losing patience with the narrative. I'm just over it. It's like, have a better answer. Start testing the practice biology. I mean, that should be front and center. And I'm asking some institution to have the balls to do it because they're not doing it. They're not doing it because it's going to bust a narrative. And that's, that's weak. <laughs> I, it, right. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just not, uh, like you said, I'm not going to wait. You can go on a tour group. You can go somewhere. Uh, the Bosnian pyramid is also a large archeological site. There are active archaeological sites that take volunteers. There is work. I mean, we're not, 
I'm not, mind you, going off to randomly date. Jennifer Deo, the archaeologist, uh, we have an archaeopriest that's been blessed by uh, archaeopriesting. Mm-hmm. And we are going to be uh, doing our work together with permission of Nira and Dennis Stone, who owns America's Stonehenge. That's the other, that's the other distinction. I believe that work has gone on, and Dennis and I have talked about this at America's Stonehenge. The work has continued strictly because it is privately owned. Baalbek, Lebanon, where the big stones are, that site is privately owned. And that's the distinction. If you get to sites that have been now protected, you have sites that the archaeological work's not happening, like Teotihuacan. If you look at the original 1860s and 70s uh, plate photos of the site, it looks like a series of hills. Mm-hmm. I mean, these pyramids are completely buried. They are just mounds. It took literally 99 years to get it where it is now, yet they only recently discovered tunnels that are just like the Egyptian ones that seem to indicate waterways, uh, high mercury levels. Again, the more ancient aspects of that site, the rest beyond the main courtyard is still yet to be uncovered. So what's the holdup? And that's, and, and it all goes, oh, yes, the details are money, manpower, time to, uh, and, and one of the biggest excuses that is unacceptable to me is the one that says, well, you know, we're waiting to have a better technology to bag the dirt, drum the dirt, if, if you don't know, like melty body, you know, you used to go when early archaeology went into temples in Greece, a lot of information was lost because they threw the bones out. Mm. They were looking for art. They were, that's why it's called art history. I never understood that in college. I'm like, wait, is it, it's art history or it's history? Which is it? And I don't think they made that statue for art because isn't that a god? Would that have been it, you know? And then I realized, okay, wait, they were calling it art history because they were digging up things to go put in their garden and, or on their mantle, on their Victorian mantle. So they would go into these places and instead of caring that the bones may represent, um, you know, this mastodon femur is supposed to be a bone of a Titan and it's in this particular temple. Well, they literally cliffed it they literally they're like oh we'll use this as a garbage pit and they would clear out the biological remnants or the scraps of clothing but we've now learned in the last 30 years like forensic geology or forensic geology but with forensic uh crime scenes that bodies have chemicals in them that melt out into the soil and the clay and the i know that sounds graphic for some people so hopefully no one's watching this in between meals but or during but the body as it decomposes those chemicals are still valuable so instead of just worrying about the dirt or uh, that to sweep it away and just look at the bones there's some tediousness in uh, coming up with how do you bag or manage the melt out or underneath the head or the melt out under the body how much of the soil from the body do you take from below the body you know there's the, how much do you can and then test and what kind of results are you going to get that's like that's a tremendous amount that 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 automatically makes testing of any not just the genealogy of the body itself but the again these various uh, 
lower level um, chemical sponging of this soil, again, that's thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that would be really frustrating when you discover, hey, we found a Roman graveyard. I can just see the archaeologists going, oh, they're never going to give me the money for this. And then what do you do? You know, it's like you dig up one. So I want to, I want to be very clear that I am a huge fan of archaeologists being paid to not find things. I don't need you to, I, I, I don't think they should be paid to only find things that continue a narrative that is just a joke. They need to know that they're going to get not only funded, but uh, they need to be able to want to table artifacts that are out of place, out of time that don't follow a narrative. They, they need to know that it's okay to not find what they're supposed to find. So and, would, would you propose a new um, standard for archaeology and a new way of funding it? Than the current yeah, yes. Yeah. And I think I can tell you, in my opinion, I think a lot of these people, I don't think part of it's a lack of information. So there are people out there that have become very successful and they buy really cool cars mm-hmm. and they buy really cool houses and they buy uh, really cool designer things. And, they, and, they, and, and sometimes it's jewelry and sometimes it's art. And what they don't realize is that there is a tremendous value in sponsoring an adventure like Arturo. Uh, Arthur Pozanski needs a movie about this guy. And I rarely talk about him, by the way. I think this is probably the most I've ever talked about him. But uh, there's archaeologists that don't know about them. And, and what's interesting is that there are adventure at you, the P, uh, so what you, you saw the movie where Brad Pitt plays um, yeah. Colonel Percy Fawcett. Well, simultaneously, Percy Fawcett was pissed off that the American team had rediscovered Machu Picchu. And of course, Machu Picchu is incredible. It's crazy that no one had ever found it. And it made huge headlines and made world news and everything. And so uh, obviously it was really upsetting to the Colonel that, you know, that hadn't happened to him yet, even though he had identified that there was based on pottery shards, a, a lost city of Z and the ability to get out. This isn't, again, it's not that it's not dangerous. There's politics, there's natural uh, difficulties within the jungles themselves. There are sites that have been covered in very dangerous molds and funguses that can harm you. Uh, there's a whole, the curse of the, the monkey city. Uh, I'm trying to remember where that is, if it's Guatemala or not, but there's, there's literally a whole area that's covered in a, bio, uh, a biological agent that will hurt you if you go to explore. And so that there, there are a lot of dangers to going on to be an explorer. So it's fun to go to sites that are established and be a tourist and bring a camera on your neck and snap some photos and get on a tour bus and go to a, a restaurant or whatever, but get off the beaten path. Um, even if it's not that much money, I think that interdisciplinary work of visiting an active archeological site, asking quite, I think, even with humility, uh, making a donation to archaeologists working on a particular site, uh, get off the beaten path. Uh, it takes a little, this is the adventure. You're home, you're watching some shows. Literally, there isn't a list for you to go and do this. You need to literally just look into whether you do it online through a social media site or 
uh, through emails and six degrees of separation, there are active archaeological sites all around the world. And again, uh, archaeology uh, news and and there's different there's different there's definitely different sites that you can go to and get involved and be a part of a dig. The Bosnian pyramid has seasonal activity. Uh, I'm planning not just uh, preliminary trips, but actual work. So feel free to contact us. But at the same time, getting out there and just even looking for it can be fun for you, I think. I'm just throwing that out there because I think a lot of people get interested in our shows and what we're talking about. And they don't realize they can actually, yeah, participate. They can actually Mm -hmm. get out there and just uh, have more than just a picture in front of a pyramid. They can have a picture of them in what looks like a big sandy ass ditch. But the reality is that it's a it's a ditch that they got in that was part of an old quarry that may have had 3,000 year old graves or uh, finds were made the week before, or the week after, or while they're there. I mean, the reality is is that sometimes archaeology is tedious and uh, in the sense that when you get down to hump buckets of sand and say, go make a you know, literally a four yard pile of dirt over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my whole day. I mean, but those, those, that's the fun of it too. You don't have to do the, the dig part of it. You could do the site walk. You could be, again, it's like, well, I hike. Well, pick a route that's going to take you into some of these areas that might have ruins that no one's looked at. And I'm not saying just run off in the jungle anywhere, just a disclaimer here, but it's exciting. You can get out and do actual things. So I'm all for Admiral Bird's diary if it's real, but can you, anyone show me any, does anyone have copies of the diary? Uh, can we, can we see those please? Can they be posted since you've written a book about it and whomever, if there's a, a, a book about the diary, then let's see the diary. Let's uh, have some providence on the origins of it. Then um, for people who, you know, Gary, mm-hmm. that have been to Antarctica and been in pits, where's the pits? You know, where, where were you working? This is not a big secret or a big mystery. It's like, okay, where are, uh, where was the work done? And then let's find out if that's part of that off-limit area or let's go back. So I want to know if, you know, if you know an explorer that's been to Antarctica that knows those locations, we just need to send an email and sort that out. This Homework area. Out this phone number. I'll show you who Oh no, don't contact no. is. Oh, I can't show uh, just send it. Yeah, just send it to me. Wait, I can cover it. I'll show you the name. You see there it? you go. There you go. Yep. I can see bird. This is great granddaughter. That's and I've heard that the bird is the word. It's hard not to say that. I can, I can so, only so think these of... people are reachable. Right. So when are we doing it? Let's do let's do that interview if she wants to do it. Would she do it? I gotta call her again. Well, because you were setting up for an interview, correct? Yeah, yeah. And then just like a lot of things that I do, I kind of start them and then I forget and I move on to something else. And then the topic comes up a month later and I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, I got to go back and do this. Okay, so for everyone out there listening, yeah. So you can stay on Gary now because here we have direct contact with a descendant of bird. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
you know, you want to be famous like the Brad Olson Facebook interview, then let's go. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, because I, I think there are people out there that want the credit for the expeditions. I mean, it's one thing to swish your glass of rare whatever in your car that's collectible. But guess what? Go down in history as some of the adventures. I mean, there is still a very short list of people who go to these places. And to climb Mount Everest, that's an interesting feat. But everybody does uh, now. Right. So the fact Pretty that we can up eat, there, rent a Sherpa. And not not every rent a Sherpa. Yeah, I meant I want to trade mine in. I, I wanted to go with a luxury <laughs> SUV Sherpa. Um, uh, he won't carry my comb and microwave. Uh, Hotel Everest, um, where you can climb or become an icicle. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's important that we uh, we are well capable within this age of exploring to go back and to continue to do research in places that no one's ever gone before. And so, so I, I have another question. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, like I'm going to I mean, a lot of my listeners live either, you know, here in North America or somewhere in Europe. Um. And I think one of the things that we actually neglect is um, things that we can find right in our own backyards, going totally into agree. places that, you know, you know, alongside rivers and swamps and, and places where we haven't yet built and simply just poking around, maybe metal detecting, um, you know, looking for odd shaped um, rocks, whatever it is. Um, yep. I mean, because I think one of the things that we do is we go into a field or a swamp or whatever, and we just bulldoze it. We don't even examine it first. So, so it would be good, I think, just for people just to go out and maybe explore around our homes. There is an archaeological walk that's done by different groups along uh, the Mississippi River, which starts in Minnesota here. It's very, the valleys are quite large by the time you hit Minneapolis, St. Paul, but you can literally get in the Twin Cities in Minnesota. You can go with different groups. Uh, uh, Jennifer does it. And there are actual dinosaur bones sticking out of the banks of the river. <laughs> and I know right away people want to think of full T-Rex. No, right. but... There are so many interesting things. So if you live along the Mississippi and you know anyone who's a geologist or an archaeologist, there's a good chance that they can tell you about how exposed banks and on the river, that that, 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 that is a common thing to do. There are uh, kid groups that get taken down to different points uh, in the Mississippi, right here in the cities. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to pull out a 200 million year old, hundred million year old bone. Uh, but there are other things, like you said, one of the first things, if you live and, and I, I am jealous of people in England or places where, you know, another metal detectorist finds hoard of gold or something, you know, or, you know, something from, uh, the 1300s or 1200s or, you know, the fine. But, but I think so that's cool. just as possible here too, in certain places, especially where there yeah. may have been Mayan and Aztec activity yep. that, that, that we either bulldozed over or have not yet discovered because, yeah. you know, there, there is a lot of evidence that that civilization has existed 
right here in North America much longer invite yep. people that we were not aware of. Absolutely. So we have, we have all those sites. So a quick thing to look for is like Montana is not the only place with dolmens, but I'm going to start with Montana, Montana dolmens, look up Montana dolmens. There's not just one site. These are nature did some really crazy stuff or these dolmens are uh, remnants of something else. There are multiple, the dolmens in Montana, by the way, are over the course. A lot of people don't know this. The sites range in an area of about 137 miles. So there are multiple sites and you, and again, there could be dolmens that lay undiscovered, but look up dolmens. They're in Pennsylvania. They're in from the East coast to the West coast. Dolmens are an odd thing and they're all over the world. And then another version is you can call them standing stones. Mm-hmm. And frequently it's not just somebody found a cool looking rock and tipped it on end and said, you know, this is our new ball. This is our new God. This is our new worship center. Uh, uh, um, the source Michener likes to talk about the that's in the source, you know, how the, how they stacked the first uh, three upright standing stones that ultimately were covered in sand. And then they're forgotten why they were stacked by the farmer. And it's a cool story, but all, all we have though, are these large megalithic blocks, think Stonehenge size Karnak in France uh, going on for miles is you have what's the remnants of when we look at standing stones and circles are, very in the case where they're more advanced and ancient and by advanced i mean the cutting and polishing techniques the hardness of the stone the period of like they just aren't um there's no way that the cultures that maybe stood them up where they stood them to use them for their purposes probably are the origin of those i i think standing stones for the most part are remnants the ones okay the ones that are actual building blocks the ones that are stones from things like Baalbek, things that uh are set on one on their sides and like at karnak where they go on for miles uh, these are very very weathered uh structural components of a lost and gone building and these stones for the most part have been harvested and then they were set for whatever post uh, Neolithic mm-hmm. society, you know, they set them up. And the reason I talk about extreme weathering is you have to understand that a lot of them were, and this is for the audiences that Gary knows this, but the, uh, that they're rectangular cut or they're square cut. They're very well done. And then there's, and then they're standing there and some are 30 feet tall. Some are 20 feet tall. Some are more than 30 and, and they're standing there and they have lentils cut into them and not very simple, very complex, very polygonal like cutting, but they're so weathered. The top of them look like that's like a rock out of a river. I mean, not even a river. They look like weathered honeycomb. I mean, they look like crap yet the base is carved or the side that wasn't exposed as much to the elements is very well polished. So what can you say about these standing stones and these dolmens that are all over and you could find them on a hike to Gary's point, maybe in Red Rock in the Canyon, there's odd things that you may think or credit to something contemporary or even a native culture in the last couple thousand years. And in reality, you could be looking at a dolmen that was built in a, a pre-ancient advanced human society that, again, you just got to snap a photo now. Everyone has more computing power on them now than we 
use to go to the moon and your basic analysis, even some magnetic uh, analysis can be done, some general directional. If you want to get into archaeoacoustics, there's a couple singing rock mountains. Right. Uh, those are odd as hell. What, what, what was that? It's like, well, it's just the way they all broke. Mm. It's also kind of like that one by the, uh, oh, I can't think of the name. I did an episode on it not that long ago. Oh, well. Uh, was it on Singing Rock? Yeah, yeah. The guy built like this um, immortality machine near it. Oh, that's cute. Um, <laughs> wait, what the heck was it? That... Well, is it the, this, there's, a, there's a couple Singing Rock Mountains. One is, <clears throat> excuse me, I think one's towards uh, the east and uh, one's towards the west. But there are lots of... Um, very acoustically tuned rocks and there's some mystery you know you can get a quartz kit grow quartz there's lots mm. of different kinds of rocks granite in itself is a very curious stone given the components that's in it and there are actually no good theories on how it formed and the integratron oh yeah 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 that's um, what I was trying to. Trying I've been to, there by Van Tassel. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, uh, that that was, of course, it's like people go there now. It's just an empty space that you they use for meditation, and and there's like a, and that is not very but, far but, from. But, but Big near Rock. there, there's a, there's a, a place right where there's a notch carved into the rock that has like some amazing acoustics. That I have not been to at all, actually. Uh, I'm super curious. Is it big? Yeah, I mean, it's where he's apparently he 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 carved a, his house into the bottom of that rock, and that's where he lived. Yeah, there was a the big rock. There was a the bar underneath it. It's ten stories tall. It's a single glacial boulder allegedly, and that location was a massive hotspot of UFO activity. Yeah, like straight up, I want to believe saucer in the background stuff, and people came out there so much they uh, in fact uh big or giant rock big rock i just don't know why i can never call it the thing that it is i'm gonna <laughs> i'm correcting this now for everyone i'm so sorry it's just that it's such an odd, such I, an I, odd I, I mess stuff up all the time i can't remember I, anything wait till you get as old as me oh yeah it is called giant rock and uh, again the guy it's in the mojave desert mm -hmm. Uh, it's not too far from where con it was the last year that contact in the desert was in, um, um, gosh, what was it? It was, uh, I'm blanking on it. The um, Joshua tree meditation center. So as you're headed to 29 palms uh, in the massive Joshua park, you could go to um, the meditation center, which has multiple buildings. You're outside. It's hot as hell. People, I mean, plastic, literally computers were melting outside, but uh, giant rock is not too far away. And they bolted it for climbing and back in, um, they would do conventions there. It's super interesting that the Integratron, uh, that also, again, it's still, that that's still a thing. And it's, uh, 
let's see here. It, I was there. Okay, so this is the very first time. I should be more excited about this. I'm I'm more concerned about the fact that there was a bar underneath and there's pictures of it. And we <laughs> should have posted those. Um, uh, they they had it so that you could go underneath, like you said, and he set it all up. The lone prospector. Um, so what's interesting is that I sat there in the middle of the night with with a friend and we saw UFO activity for nonstop periods. And so it was it it literally what what I'm I'm let's see, let's see, no, expand, exit, minimize. Here we go. So you can go out to Giant Rock and it got known. It's a, actually that's worth looking up. Tons of eyewitnesses of UFO activity. Now, when I was there, um, so we got there before dark. And then we stay till after dark. And what I started to see were the three light triangle UFOs. Mm -hmm. And I know they have a name. I can't, uh, ironically, yeah, it's not aliens worse. It's us. Uh, I, I, and of course my publisher, Olaf Phillips has done a lot of work on the military secret space program, which does include what I think, what I was looking at. I believe that these triangle shaped ones represent the U S patent that was filed by the air force. I do think that this represents, uh, the anti-gravity and the technology that is military. I don't think that these are highly advanced ancient humans. I, I just, my opinion, but what I saw wasn't one or two, but it was groups of three to five and they were at a significant distance. So the reason I don't have photos is because in typical UFO fashion, none of the pictures would work out. And it was interesting. It would be, it would be, you're, you're watching and you see the three lights. It's just, and at first, and I have some experience in flight training, I, I did try, I was going to, I did want my pilot's license. So I, I have that behind me. I have some extreme discernment on uh, what I, I'm looking carefully at what I'm, I'm trying to walk through what I want to describe to people for what I think I saw. And at first I saw the three lights and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm looking at three planes because they're pretty far away. At this point, there may be 40, 50 miles. I mean, they're, it's far out. The, the lights are like the distance of my fingers right now to the screen, to what you're looking at. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's three planes. I'm like, oh, there's another group of three, another group of three. Okay, so I see three now. Oh, um, there's a fourth one. And okay, one of them's blinking. And then at first I thought, well, that one's blinking. Now it's not blinking. And now there's one over here blinking. And then I watched this one instantly go from here to there. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm looking at like a group and I'm just like one turned off lights. And then, and then it was just slow enough that I could see that it was directional, that it was literally jumping to a point, just jumping and it was there. And then it was jumping back. And I'm like, no way. I didn't just see that. That didn't happen. And so in the sky, I'm now looking at something that's jumping 20 miles from its original group and then going back. And I'm like, Whoa. And it didn't stop. We, we continued to watch this for maybe almost three hours. It was incredible. And that's at giant rock. And there's no way you're, I, I highly doubt that you would be able to go and see stuff. 
But again, you know, we're not far from 29 Palms, the military base. Well, that whole area, that whole activity, the desert, et cetera. And it's surprisingly empty. And by the way, it's all dirt. There's no road to Giant Rock, by the way. This isn't a get out tourist stand place. It is still out there. You need to actually like, don't get lost. Because when we left, we got lost. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first. I know somebody who got lost going there. Oh, we got lost out there. It is not a fun place to be lost in the middle of the night. It is. Boy, you got to have a, it's better to have an all-wheel drive vehicle. Don't go out in a car. Uh, you are on sand and you're on rough road. There's no maintenance. It is scary. It's, uh, it's not a place you want to get stuck all day. I'll tell you that. It was good to be stuck at night, but. Wow, super interesting because oh yeah, I saw real UFOs. That that, that was a thing, but not my focus. I just need to know it was giant rock or yep. big rock. You know that's more important details. <laughs> so it's a fun place to get out to because it's not far. But now you know contact is virtual this year. Contact in the desert is in uh, uh, well, it's. Palm Springs. I don't know how I blanked on that. So it's been in Palm Springs two years. Uh, but of course it's this year it's virtual. They're not going to do it in person. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, 5d convention is in Vegas. That's, that's that there's that. I don't, I, I, I'm all for people going to see Brad. <laughs> I've interviewed him. He's quite, quite, quite a broad, um, brilliant uh researcher i mean he's got a lot a lot of stuff in i have to get him back on yeah uh well just don't shoot for friday (laughs) which i know i know everybody's booked out forever in this but yeah i think um i think we're making serious progress on the grand canyon and the initial visit like i was saying going out to america's stonehenge for me uh, this is a trip where Dark Hour Paranormal, uh, Michael Dozier is coming. Uh, Michael, of course, from Conflict. Uh, I'm coming, but then I'm going to do that live lecture, uh, three hours. Like I said, I'll have tickets out on notaliens.com, uh, hopefully by the weekend. And you'll be able to come. Uh, please join us. It's in New Hampshire. It's not too far from the East Coast. I think maybe it'd be fun for just the East coast, uh, you know, that area, it, it's just not that far. It's out of Salem, New Hampshire. Now you're making me wish I lived back in New Jersey. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> but, but you're, you're a man of leisure now and you have a, you've moved to a onward and upward, right? The neighborhood's great. I'm in the deep South. I, I, I didn't want to out you for any particular area. You didn't want to, I mean, it's not like you're hunting alligator out your door, right? I can actually, yeah. if I go out my back door, I can find an, I can find a gator pretty quick. Oh, that's pretty sweet. There's some fossils that are living. Uh, I, I like to feed them chicken. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Throw them chickens. Real chickens? Not live chickens, but buy a chicken in the store and all. You just toss them a, Toss them a yeah, they open just the feed mouth, the gators. Toss it in there. Cool. They're like squirrels or birds. Some people just keep feeding the alligators. Why not? As long as they don't knock on the door and ask for seconds. 
Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> That's uh, you don't have any small animals, do you? That not the yard to leash them in. Apparently, uh, I mean, I do have a a French bulldog. But you gotta worry about that. He's pretty mean. Oh, <laughs> great! Yeah, yeah. He's 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 even mean to me. He chews on my leg in the morning. Uh, that well, you know, if you're hungry and you're not gonna feed me, I feel like your leg is the next. You know, I feed him, but he he just he just likes to gnaw on human flesh. Interesting animal. <laughs> Very interesting animal. <laughs> Uh, that's hilarious. So yeah, the, um, uh, I'm going to be doing the forbidden knowledge news conference, April 2nd and 3rd, uh, the second I'm the keynote at 7 PM set Eastern and on uh, Saturday, Jim Willis, the author of 13 books and his last one. Oh, uh, I just got Jim's book in the mail last night. Nice. Yeah. The, which Uncensored one? Censored God. Yes. Uh, I just, I just got it. I love that guy. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to have him on and we're going to do, uh, uh, we're going to be doing a group conversation for people who want to participate in the virtual conference, which will be fun. You can get tickets at forbidden knowledge news. I have nothing to do with it other than the fact that, you know, of course I want people to listen and I'll be, I'll be speaking Friday and then Jim and I are going to do a panel discussion and take mm -hmm. questions and answers on Saturday. No, I told Jim, I said, hi. I will. I love Jim. And yeah, then uh, a couple of times he's great. Oh yeah. It's crazy. And he's, I can't believe it. 13 bucks. And then, uh, then the trip, like I said, I'm, I will be speaking at America's Stonehenge at the end of April, which is really actually, I don't even know why I'm saying that the day I'm going to speak for three hours is May 1st. So it's Saturday, May 1st. I will uh, have those tickets available. But like I said, uh, I'm so sorry to tell everyone. I don't even know. Should I even be asking when you're putting this out? If you're not putting it out for, <laughs> it'll be out in about a week and a half. All right, so that'll still make. Uh... It'll be out before May first. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I know. From a timing standpoint, the specifics of the Grand Canyon. We're just looking at cave locations, mm -hmm. and. Then we have to establish uh, how easy or inaccessible the caves are. So that's don't have any dates or anything for anyone other than just stay tuned for Gary and I to cover more. I feel <laughs> like I'm ahead on homework. Awesome. <laughs> on this round. <laughs> um, so before we wrap it up, of course. Where can my listeners find you? I mean, you've mentioned a whole bunch of places that you're going to be. I mean, yeah. So it's uh, so so in order. Notaliens.com. I'll have tickets there for the April twenty or the May first lecture at America Stonehenge that I'll be doing. I'm offering a free book. Uh, if you want to sign up, you'll get a book and you'll get the lecture for three hours, and then we'll we'll I'll do question and answer after uh but then uh we'll be doing the forbidden knowledge news conference april 2nd and through the through saturday and i'll be speaking friday night and with jim willis on saturday but then also on amazon if you just want to get a book quick and you're in another country it's certainly a lot cheaper to go on amazon and grab a book from there and then go to 
Uh, my site, if you are out of country and you are listening, there is an added fee to get the book, unfortunately, across seas because I'm the one sending it. I actually I sign a book specifically for you and then ship it from Minnesota. So that's a different expense than, of course, going to your local Amazon and getting it for the cost of the book and free shipping. Um, but other than that, that's uh, where everybody can find me coming up this week. I'm, I think the next show, uh, as far as, you know, because if you're putting this out in about a week and a half, then um, we're talking, we're moving into, uh, I'll be doing Dudes and Beer podcast on the 30th. Oh, you're doing these guys? Wow. Yeah. Do you like those guys? Yeah. We put it, I've not actually, you know, I haven't been on before there. And that'll be uh, eight, it looks like eight, eight central. And I'll be, of course, interviewing um, Teresa and Daniel Duke again on Wednesday, the 31st. And then, I mean, I think I'm just timing this out based on when you're available. Uh, as far as like when you put this out, but then yeah, I think you'll be putting this out right before the Forbidden Knowledge News Conference. So uh, cool. That's about it. It's amazing, Jared. You're busy. You are yeah. wor- you are world renowned. Oh, uh, you're just still stuck. I think you really like that UFO. I think you really like the 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 UFO uh, dialogue there. That's that's it. That's what's making me famous in your mind. I don't. I love this. I know our, our last episode together did really, really well. Did it? It did. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm glad people are enjoying the shows. Yeah, uh, they love it. I I should um I'll ask you about that after you do you you have a cool exit bumper, right? I do. And also, just to put this out there, um, you too, Jared, could become a contributor to everything imaginable. All you have to do is go to my website everything imaginable2020.com and check it out so and and you're selling swag now too and yeah, yeah. but but the, the the contributor section is amazing yeah what else do you do in the contributor area you're gonna have to go there and check it out okay everything imaginable.com 20 i mean everything imaginable2020.com there's the uh that that's where it's going to stay. I mean, it could be 2021 or 2022, but it's 2020. 2020 has done it again. <laughs> There's a reference. All right. Well, thanks for being on, man. Yeah. Thank you. This is fun. All right. Here we go. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh, yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.